In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In mankind's imperfection, there is a tendency to take something good, perhaps even noble, and turn it into something perverse or ignoble. Another way to say that is to say that we from time to time think, take things that are good and wholesome and we corrupt them, turning them from good to non-good. That doesn't mean that whatever it is becomes evil, but simply less good than what it was intended to be. It's a story that has been replayed so often, no one can number the times it has been retold and acted out. It is part of the theme of the fall, found as early in Holy Scripture as Genesis 3, that Adam and Eve took something that was good in and of itself, that is, they took their humanity that God had given them, and found it to be lacking through the tempting of the serpent. We continue in the same narrative, turning things that are good and beneficial, like money, food, shelter, even our relationships, and we deprive them of their original and God-given goodness. Understanding that whole concept then allows us to enter into the dialogue between Jesus and the Sadducee and realize that Jesus is attempting to help them see several things at once. And it is where we also need to listen to Jesus' words and make certain that we do not fall into the same trap as the Sadducees did. Just like the division in the church today into different denominations that believe different things about baptism, Eucharist, and so on, there were different sects of Jews who emphasized, or in this case, de-emphasized certain beliefs and tenets in the law, in the Torah. One of the defining characteristics of the Sadducees is their lack of belief in the general resurrection, that is, the coming of the day of the Lord when all dead would rise from their graves. Once someone was dead, they were dead. There was no coming back. You are alive one minute, and in the next, you simply cease to be. That was the belief of the Sadducees. And a very helpful way to remem remember them, as opposed to the Pharisees, is from an old Sunday school cliché that I learned, and it goes like this. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, so made, that made them sad. You see? Yeah, I know, but it does work. So... When they come to ask Jesus the question, they were intentionally setting up the premise of, of the question in a way to catch Jesus by him perhaps leaving out some detail of the Torah or to throw out their own sense of his belief is wrong and they're going to prove him wrong. And in doing so, they corrupt the Torah, the law, the gift that God had given his people on Mount Sinai. What they referred to about this marrying of women to the brothers of the people who had died, we know this as the Liverite Code. In essence, it says that if a widow has no children, the brother, the next oldest brother of her now dead husband, has a duty to marry to produce at least one child 
who would then inherit his father's portion of what should have been the rightful portion of the firstborn son's inheritance. It was a law to help ensure the proper distribution of inheritance, as well as a law to ensure that widows and orphans were looked after by not only their families, but also by the community. While it may seem strange to us today, several thousand years ago, this was the custom. And when we think about it, even within the last century or so, the idea of one child inheriting a greater share of whatever it is because they happen to be the firstborn, be it land or money, houses, paintings, it really isn't all that foreign. This is the basis of their question. If the resurrection is a true event, then after all of these marriages and after all of these lifetimes, who does the woman belong to? And if you caught the hint that she, the woman, the wife, might be a piece of property, then give yourself a gold star or go into the library and get a piece of Halloween candy. Rather than answering the question as the Sadducees have given it, Jesus turns the question on its head and tells them that the whole question is in error because they are losing the truth about the purpose of both the law and the Torah and about the identity of Yahweh as he has chosen to reveal himself in generations past. Throughout the Old Testament, but particularly in the Torah, God reveals himself through the recognition of those who follow him. God names himself to others by his association with those who have come before. And that's where we get this familiar refrain of, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And this echoes throughout scripture. And this is where Jesus draws his distinction about their belief. First, Jesus calls to mind that the way that statement is constructed, it is implied that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are indeed alive. But we, and the Sadducees, we all know that Abraham is dead. We know it. Abraham's grave is a well-known place that people visit. Therefore, if God is referring to them as actually alive, what could it mean other than that their souls live on and that they are being kept safe, being kept whole, being kept secure with God? The phrase that Jesus reminds them of is not, I was the God of Abraham who is no longer alive, but instead, I am current, present, everlasting. Once we understand that, then we realize that Jesus' dismissing of their question is because they are then focusing their entire efforts on the life of this world, the giving and receiving of property, marriage, a worldly-minded outlook rather than on the whole complete narrative. The Sadducees are trapped like a horse having blinders on into a narrow interpretation of the law that leaves the rest of the scriptures 
even the stories found in the law, out of their field of vision. They cannot perceive the reality of God and the truth behind the law because they have made God into something small and the law into something that all it does is dictate ownership of property. Part of what Jesus is pointing out to the Sadducees is because of their lack of faith, their lack of fully understanding the working out of God's will, that they have lost part of the vision part of the hope and the joy that comes from God and is given to those who love him. And in his explanation, Jesus, by saying that people are neither married or given in marriage in the new creation, gives us several clues as to what life and death look like. It is one of the clearest statements on the matter that we have from Jesus found in the Gospels. To that end, and because it is part of the central point of this passage, let me be rather frank about several misconceptions about heaven and the afterlife. Many misconceptions are things that have crept in from our reading of Plato and other literature. Or for us modern people, things that we see on television or in the movies that while make for nice ideas and give us those warm, fuzzy feelings, they're not the gospel. It's not the reality found in Scripture. I think all of us have seen the cartoons in newspapers and magazines with a man sitting on a cloud with a harp looking like an angel. Or I have heard people tell someone in their grief that, particularly when a child dies, that God needed an extra angel. That's not the gospel. That's a lie. Nor is it that we go to a heavenly country club where we can all play golf and gin rummy all day as I heard at a funeral a few weeks ago. We don't become angels. And heaven is not a new hedonistic realm. Rather, and this is what Jesus has pointed to. Because of our immortal status. This is part of what we talked about on All Saints and on All Souls Day. Because when we die, life is changed, not ended. We cannot think of the next life in the same terms as we think of this life. We become like angels, not angels. We do not become angels we are the saints. The other creatures are angels. But we become like angels in that we are immortal beings doing the will of God. Angels do the will of God. We as the saints do the will of God in the new creation. We are children of the resurrection because we have come through this life following our Lord who also passed from life to death and back to life again. One of our calls, and it is what the Sadducees and even we ourselves miss from time to time, is that we are called to live in this life, but with our eyes focused on the next, looking forward to the world, but also begin to shaping that new world here in our daily life. I mentioned a few minutes ago 
that the reason for the Liberite law was to help protect widows and orphans so that they too could share in the inheritance, the earthly inheritance that was left for them and was theirs by their right rather than being poor and destitute. Hiding behind the precepts of the law would be the easiest option. Hence, part of the formulation of that ridiculous question of theirs. However, what if the Sadducees, instead of worrying too much about the law as a rule, and instead lived into the spirit of the law, sought out the widows and the orphans, and guaranteed their survival, rather than using the law to dictate who the responsible party would be? In other words, instead of all this bickering, what if they, the Sadducees, said as a body, yes, the law says this, but we know the intent behind the law, and so we will help all widows and all orphans in our community. Then we will truly be fulfilling the law of God. I hope you see the difference. Because the church gets it wrong as well, all of the time. We do become like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, losing sight of what our own calling as the church is. We become too worldly-minded, too focused on canons and laws and rules until we sometimes cripple ourselves in the ministry that Christ called us to and we forget the purpose behind it. Yes, the canons and the laws of the church, the rules that we live by are good and they make sense and they are needed and they are important, but we cannot use them as a bludgeon to help us not do ministry. We are in stewardship season, which also means that this is a time of thanksgiving, counting our blessings, looking to the past at all the blessings that God has bestowed on us, but also looking forward to how we show our gratitude to God. One of the great Texas poets that I've discovered recently from the early part of the 20th century, Grace Noel Crowell, wrote a hymn, a text, and the first line of it sums up this idea beautifully. What she said was, Because I have been given much, I too must give. We cannot be like the Sadducees who are concerned about nothing except living life in this world. We must constantly be looking forward to look and see how we can help bring God's new creation, which has already begun, began on Easter Day, into its fullness now. If you think about it this way, then the work we begin now, here in this world, in this life, becomes the work that carries on, that we, we continue to do in the next that's part of the beautiful passage of the last two chapters of the entire Holy Scriptures. God is the living God of Abraham 
and Isaac and Jacob. He is also the living God of you and of me. And he is the living God of all of our friends, all of our family, all whom we have known who sleep in the peace of Christ. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And in that, we have many, many reasons to rejoice. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.